0: At Toyota, we set our sights on creating a car that looks good, feels good, but does even more good. One that feels even more exciting, even more energetic, even more electric, without ever needing to be plugged in. Challenge accepted. The all-new self-charging hybrid electric Yaris. Contact your dealer today about flexible payment options and see just how affordable the new Yaris is. Toyota. Built for a better world.
1: Hello and welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post's Westminster correspondent, and today I'm joined by three guests to talk about how the campaign trail is going so far. Later on we'll also be hearing from a negotiations expert who's going to tell us exactly what skills politicians need to succeed in today's political sphere. But first of all, I'd like to introduce Tom Forth, Head of Data at the Open Data Institute Leeds, Ryan Swift, PhD researcher at the University of Leeds, specialising in the politics of the north of England, and Robin Vinter, social affairs correspondent at the Yorkshire Post. Hello all. Hello. 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 By the way, Jerry,
2: I really like the way you say Yorkshire. Thank you. It's really like satisfying to listen to.
1: Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I'm not from Yorkshire, although my yeah. dad is from Halifax. So it's got to be something in there somewhere. Maybe you I? should
2: just start saying Yorkshire in a really Halifax kind of way.
1: I'm not yeah. sure how I'd do that. <laughs>
2: no.
1: Let's not, let's no, not, let's let's not, not get into that. I don't want to offend half of the listenership. So <laughs> thank you so much for coming on today, guys. Um, I want to talk a bit about what has gone on in the campaign so far. How it's specifically affected our region and what the impact has been. I mean, one of the big things that obviously we have reported on a lot at the Yorkshire Post and has been reported on widely as well is the flooding, which hit kind of South Yorkshire and also the Midlands. I mean, Robin, let's start with you. What what do you think the response was like from politicians to that disaster? I think it's a really
2: difficult one with things like flooding that kind of evolve over time and they start Mm -hmm. off, you know, no one's really sure how much of a big deal it is at the start and then it takes a bit of time and then eventually people are like, you know, before you know it, it's a really kind of dire situation. Sure. Um, I think the the kind of view that I have and the view that uh, a lot of our listeners will have um, is that um, it was quite... Um, the reaction overall from politicians was quite slow, mm-hmm. but particularly from Boris Johnson, who obviously is the prime minister. Yeah, he, I mean, it was five or six days before he mm.
1: before he even made a visit.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think his he made a few kind of throwaway comments about um, how it wasn't a national emergency and things like that, and it and there's a real contrast to. Um, was it 2007, I mm-hmm. think, um, when um, David Cameron... The Somerset Somerset Levels, when David Cameron um, said that money was no object. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, and declared a national emergency and had Cobra meetings immediately. Um, and it, the, the, the feeling was that um, Johnson had to be really pressed into kind of acting. Um, and also, you know, for Yorkshire, it gave... Um, it gave Jeremy Corbyn the opportunity to say that, you know, this wouldn't be, this wouldn't be the reaction if it had happened in Surrey, which, um, you know, politically, that you know, that's a bit silly of Johnson to have allowed that opportunity to happen because yeah. that's something for, you, for us, for Yorkshire people, that's something
1: that kind of really triggers yeah. <laughs> us, so and we love to hear that. <laughs> by the time Boris Johnson was visiting places like Doncaster and things like that, Jeremy Corbyn had actually made two visits by that point. I mean... Tom, what, do you, what does that look like?
0: So I, I think the main memory I have of the of the floods, uh, thankfully, when there were floods in Leeds, I was living here and my office was flooded, so mm-hmm. it was less personal this time. Obviously, to people in South Yorkshire, it's terrible. The memory I have is is of that statement you mentioned, Robin, Boris Johnson saying, "This is not a national emergency."
1: Yeah, and you know, readers of the Yorkshire Post <coughs> will hopefully remember that um, we had a very. You know, hard-hitting front page, which featured on a lot of programs like Newsnight and things like that, yeah. because people were saying, you know, would this have happened in the south? But you know, you were saying that's that's the bit you remember. Yeah, and
0: I, I think there was there's a side to that which I have surprisingly some th- sympathy with. So flooding is a local issue, right? Mm-hmm. And y- you really you need your local government to come in and sort that out.
1: Yeah, and, and the and council local... did take quite a lot of flack as well for their for their reaction.
0: It's a challenge for the council and councils everywhere because they have been cut really, really significantly. So their capacity to respond uh, is is really significantly less than it would have been a decade ago. I think there was another side which I quite liked was Boris Johnson, when he eventually did arrive started going around clubs or community centres talking to people and it was it was typically a woman who just looked at him and went why are you here
1: now
0: (laughs) my house is really wet you should have been here four five days ago it was resentment
1: in her voice wasn't it there
0: was there was a few clips like that and i think one of the interesting things about the campaign is surprised me a bit is that jeremy corbyn does do i think quite a lot better Mm -hmm. with people yeah. generally than boris johnson and that so the, i think he was up quite quickly uh he, he missed an event because he was in doncaster at the floods yeah. and lots of I, I think that was a really interesting moment lots of people said oh why weren't you at this event i can't even remember what it was it was something very very important mm. apparently oh they're all but, very important but yeah. <laughs> um and he said well i was in doncaster it's, yeah. it's flooded yeah. and, and uh, i thought that was quite a nice yeah. uh, nice uh, achievement for them it have will have yeah. looked pretty good.
2: And he was pictured with Ed Miliband as well, you yeah. know, like stood side by side with Ed Miliband mm. speaking to people. Yeah. Um, which, you know, considering how divided the Labour Party is or how divided people consider the Labour Party to be, um, that was really good optics, I think.
1: Well, um, also um, with Caroline Flynn as well. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you know, we had, before the election, um, Caroline was one of those uh, Labour MPs who had signed a letter urging um, the EU to accept um, Boris Johnson's Brexit deal exactly. and had kind of split with that yeah. so you you're right, the optics of that of him standing with those who haven't always been on his wing of the party, I mm. think, has been has been really good. I mean, Ryan, you obviously do a lot of research on politics in the North England. Was this kind of the reaction you expected from the two leaders or was it was it a bit different?
3: Yeah, well I agree it was a lackluster kind of response mm-hmm. from Boris Johnson, but the way that um Labour and Jeremy Corbyn tried to politicise that on frame that I think kind of went deeper than the floods I think it was kind of the idea that the Conservatives have less interest in the north of England in general, not just in flooding but on lots of issues, especially in South Yorkshire when a lot of them seats are going to be hotly contested this time but there's a lot of deep history of distrust of the Conservatives there, especially from the 80s onwards so I think it was trying to kind of not just talk about the floods but chime with that and hopefully make some other people considering Ditching Labour this time think twice about it.
1: Absolutely and that's interesting that you say that because we've also recently had the uh, the poll out from YouGov haven't we the, the uh, fabled MRP oh, yeah. which was we yeah. supposed to predict uh, be the exit poll before the exit poll um, this is a survey which um, it predicted the hung parliament in 2017 It was one well, of the only ones to do so and it does a seat by seat analysis of, of how it's going to go so when we're talking about you know these these areas that have a distrust of the Tories that doesn't seem to be playing out in that poll where it said that Labour are going to lose only nine Yorkshire seats you know a couple of those are really really close places like Keighley and Gisbury has like one two points in it they it's going to be really really close there but Robin what do you think what did you what did you make of it were you surprised by it? I am baffled, actually, yeah. by it. Yeah. Um, so they, so the
2: MRP um, predicted that um, Don Valley would go to the Conservatives, yeah. which is really interesting because, um, like you were saying, Tom, Don, Va- Don Valley was where you know we had all those videos of of people confronting Boris Johnson, saying you're not doing enough, um, why are you here? Um, and also, what's significant as well in that seat is they have a Brexit uh, party candidate running as well. Yeah, they do. Um, so actually. The Tories in that seat are not the only brexit party Sure. um which yeah which I, th- I feel is quite significant. They've got quite a popular MP and um yeah and like you say historically a labor seat
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, so I, I don't know i there's we've always known that we can't predict um seats in this country we can't predict things on a constituency basis you know we've tried lots of times you know in the u s you know you can predict fairly re- you know reasonably well which how how everything's going to go but in the uk we we've never been able to do that. And, and i think this is just another example of i mean i might be wrong i might end up eating my hat in, in a week's time um but uh yeah but that to me this is another example
1: of how we're completely unable to predict those seats Tom, working yeah. with data the mrp must be like christmas come early to you
0: so the mrp which is i believe Ooh, go on. multiple regressions with post stratification
1: Ooh. And, and
0: some people listening may say actually I've got the M wrong but uh-huh. people define it differently. One of the things that's really annoyed me about MRP is that loads and loads of people are talking about it and the Wikipedia page is terrible. <laughs> so I am on now a mission to improve the Wikipedia page which I think will help all of us really yeah. from journalists right down to listeners and readers to think I actually understand this. I mean the reason it's not very good is that no other country has an electoral system like ours, Mm -hmm. so we've got this this tool, MRP, which is developed just for basically two countries, the UK and the US where the individual constituency or the state really matters. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge with it is, when you have the vote shares as they are now, there's quite a big gap between Conservatives and Labour a lot of this worrying about uh, close races and which way will they go I mean, if the gap in overall vote share is big none of it matters right I mean all you're doing is counting how big a conservative majority will be yeah. what's interesting is that since then that overall vote share gap in the polls has gone down a fair bit it at that point it starts to get a bit more exciting but at the time when they did the MRP poll it wasn't all that exciting because the gap was still very big
1: I mean it predicted what a 68 seat Tory majority which is a lot more than I think a lot of people were expecting I was definitely Quite shocked by it. I mean, should should we take these these surveys seriously, Ryan?
3: Um, well, I think the MRP was a kind of snapshot of the polls at the time. So as Tom says, they've yeah. narrowed since then. So I think they might be doing another one next week. So that might be all um, very exciting. Eyes lit up <laughs>
1: over the other side of the table. <laughs> where I'm yeah. sitting my, my <laughs> face absolutely dropped <laughs> as I uh, realised another late night was was coming. Mm. It, you know, yeah. Robin, you mentioned. A bit about the Brexit Party because so when we're talking about Don hmm. Ballard, they've got a Brexit Party candidate and they've had this strategy, haven't they? They pulled out all their um candidates from seats which had been conservative and they said they were gonna really fight in Labour Labour heartland seats. Ryan, have you have you got any thoughts on What's kind of changed in those seats that means that the Brexit Party why why they would be targeting them, you know, why they think that they could pick up some core votes there. Yeah,
3: I think not just the Brexit Party but the Conservative Party mm, yeah. doing well in the type of areas you mentioned, Don Valley and plus in West Yorkshire as well. I think it's kind of fits with a trend of socially conservative kind of working class voters deserting Labour in them type of places that's been happening for quite a long time, not just in this election, but I think Maybe what might happen here if um, Labour do lose them type of seats is that Brexit might have been the straw that's broke the camel's back, kind of when pushing more of them type of voters to leave Labour. So if that happens and Labour increasingly appealing to more affluent, younger professional voters, mm-hmm. kind of might be the first time that this realignment that's been bubbling under the surface for a while becomes. Yeah. Reflected in the electoral map.
0: There's, there's another poll which I find maybe even more interesting than those MRP ones. No, unless. surely not. Yeah, <laughs> it's the um, popularity of the leader polls. I was then going oh, yeah. to talk about Jeremy Corbyn and, actually how much that means about it. Go on. And I th- I'm sure that's got to be an issue because if you if you go and talk to people in these places and all Labour canvassers will tell you the same when they're going around and they're talking to. Uh, people in northern towns and cities, they tend to avoid talking about Jeremy Corbyn. Yep. He just doesn't seem to be that popular with people, and I suppose that must have an impact.
3: So. Yeah, I think it's the idea that Corbyn doesn't join with the kind of concerns of them type of people on national security and other issues like that, and the idea of fiscal prudence and
2: and also, the, the, there's just a. I don't know. I don't know how much people have based it on their own kind of um, watching of him doing speeches and things like that. But there's just also a view that he's just unlikable. Mm. Like he's just not a natural, um, like a natural statesman, and and he's just you know not a not a likable guy, um, which I think obviously plays plays a part as well. And and those kind of things then. You know, the the more people kind of have that perception, the more they look for examples mm. of, of him not being likable. Um, but I, I I think there are very few people who would say he you know he's a really he's just a just a cool likable
1: guy. Um, I guess I was I was out in um, Keefley this week trying to, trying to talk to voters. Um, you know, you see it on the TV all the time, don't you? Journalists mm-hmm. trying to hassle some poor woman trying to have a lunch or whatever. Um, and one person said to me, "You know, I'm vain, Tory. Well, why?" And they said, "Why?" <laughs> and um, there's, you know, Boris Johnson. He's a laugh, isn't he? <laughs> he's a good laugh, and I think that view is still held by quite a lot of people despite Mm. everything that's happened despite you know the mistruths that have come out and you know the way that he's acted since he became prime minister i think a lot of people still see him as a bit of a laugh someone who can have fun you know a bit a bit of a lad and people maybe like that and i was also speaking to an activist a labor activist in um a yorkshire yorkshire constituency last week and for them it is grim you know, you're talking about them not mentioning Jeremy Corbyn. They don't want to mention his name. They think that they're going to take an absolute drubbing at the polls. And, you know, for people who are giving up their time and volunteering, putting leaflets through the door, risking getting bitten by people's dogs as they go <laughs> and put their hands through letterboxes, they feel really disenfranchised and they don't feel like the party's giving back to them. So, if you're going to lose that grassroots base, I suppose, you shouldn't be surprised if you're then going to lose a seat. Mm-hmm. It's it's an interesting one and you know Labour's tried hasn't it to really appeal to the regions especially you know Yorkshire they've launched these regional manifestos I know you've uh, you've read it cover to cover haven't you Tom? I
0: have read <laughs> the whole of the Yorkshire regional manifesto I've not read you, any I of imagine. the other regions.
1: <laughs> um, what did you make of it?
0: So th- the main part of the first thing is, it's uh, got a very nice designer, yes. so the fonts are nice, the pictures are nice, so that makes it a bit easier to no, get but it does through. help, you
1: know, you know we, we, yeah. we, we might mock, but, um, <laughs> but if, if something looks bad, no-one's going to pick it up and read it, that is yeah. a very good point. <laughs> and it
0: does suggest that a, a decent amount of effort's gone into it. I yep. think the major part of the regional manifesto for Yorkshire is, is explaining what the national policies mean in Yorkshire. Yes. So... To me, that's not really a regional manifesto. No, I it, agree. It's like an explanation of something going on. There's other things in there which are this, this kind of single line. So there's one line that says, uh, we continue to support One Yorkshire. It hmm. doesn't tell you what it is. No. I don't think many people know what that means. I don't think they're... So there's nothing really on devolution and decentralisation. And there's then, against this really broad overview... So you've had this broad overview, we support One Yorkshire. You've had, this is what our national spending pledges mean for the region. Um, Then it has like this ultra-specific stuff about gigafactories and and metal recycling. We will build a metal recycling plant in... I think it's North Lincolnshire somewhere. Yeah, and
1: then there's the kind of refabrication plant keyside places in, you know, various in very specific locations. So you, no, you're right. Yeah, it, I'm it fascinated
0: by how they picked that. <laughs> yes. Like who who did it? Why? What's the reason? <laughs> is, it, is
1: it to do with the target seats, do you think? Or is it is it something else? I don't know. It doesn't hmm. seem to be to me. It doesn't seem to be targeted like that. I it, it just it it feels a bit scattergun. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. look
0: like do you know there's that um On the Conservative side, they've got this Towns Fund, which isn't part of the... They got into a lot of trouble for this, but it's not part of the election uh, manifestos Mm -hmm. because it's a government policy from before the election was called. And when you look at the list of the towns, they they do look a bit fishy, some of Mm. them. They they are a little bit too Conservative... swing seats yeah. Yeah. to be just by chance These... just give a
1: shout out to jim williams at the men at this point yeah. she's done a lot of work on the towns fund and has you know really highlighted how a lot of those are are those swing seats that the tories will be will be looking to gain it was similar with the transport announcement we had this week as well you know a lot of a lot of that was um very much in in target areas for mm. the tories mm. it's yeah. yeah was that the was
2: that the the beaching reversing the beaching stuff yeah it was yeah Yeah. yeah, Yeah. so a lot of that is like it's like literally a list of their target seats and it's like yeah you're gonna have trains again um because you don't have any yeah yeah
1: (laughs)
0: Yeah. i remember when jen williams raised this point in rotherham it was at yes. boris johnson's speech there and he replied that he thought it was a bit cynical yeah i mean notably he didn't deny it no. i mean he said oh i think that's a bit cynical it's probably true though so <laughs> there is a bit of that i couldn't see that in the the labor announcements i can't see much reason that they've given for why they've picked what places they have
3: no, I, really. think, I think the idea was to kind of to try and flesh out and make more realistic what the national policies would give people locally but the numbers are still so big that it's kind of still hard to see how it'd affect you personally.
1: And is that, you know, we're talking about those big numbers, there's been a lot of big announcements from Labour about the money they'll spend and the jobs they'll create. Are those numbers too big for people to believe?
3: Maybe they might sound too good to be true, maybe. But in terms of the north and devolution, all the manifestos have kind of paid lip service to improving devolution. But as you say, there's no real policy. But in terms of investment, Labour goes... Much further than anyone else, but as you say, it's whether people believe that that money will actually come down and how it will actually affect their lives.
0: I think this point about whether people believe it is probably, for me, the biggest thing about this election. So you look at the Conservative promises, so they go to North Manchester, I think, and they say, we'll build 40 new hospitals. And then within a couple of days, basically people look through it all and they go that 's not forty new ones no, it 's mm. six yeah. um, and we 'll give uh, four point odd billion pounds to improve city transport and even mention Leeds mm. in in the manifesto they say Leeds is the biggest big city in europe without a mass transit system Uh, and then they say well and there's this 4.7 billion pounds and when you look at it it's not going to start for another two years then Mm -hmm. it's going to be over five years it's going to be a fund that places with mayors can bid into and they might get Uh, and i think that in terms of the labor promises they are much bigger and then the question always is how are you going to fund them yeah their plan is to fund by wealth taxes and, and taxes really on very high earners. I think most people have come back and look at that and said, we don't think, so I think the IFS have even looked at this yeah, and said, have. we don't think that you're f- just raising taxes on the very wealthiest is going to raise enough money. Yeah. If you want to pay for all this, we've all got to pay. And to be you fair, the be IFS have it.
1: also said that the Tory manifesto isn't yeah. uh, looking great either just mm-hmm. for that balance there. They're not too happy with either of the parties. But this kind of it plays in, doesn't it, to the overall feeling of trust in politicians Mm. in the country. Um a lot of people are telling me they're really voting for the least worst option. Um what do you think the feeling from the electorate is about having an election in general? And what's you know, what's what's the temperature out there? What do you reckon, Robin?
2: I think the timing is really interesting. So the people I've spoken to, you know, the the members of the public just on the street um, there's, there's definitely a, um, you know, Boris hasn't had a chance kind of view, like, you know, give him a chance to get Brexit done. Um, and Brexit, yes, is he is truly the underdog.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: and Brexit is um, the, you know, the biggest issue for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think recently there was a poll that showed um, the NHS is just like. Um, overtaken uh, Brexit as the biggest issue uh, for most people Um, which is really interesting then because you think that plays exactly into Labour's hands um, you know, who you know, the party's pledged so much on the NHS and really campaigned very hard on the NHS in a way that um the Tories haven't, mm. um or that, you know, they've 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 done
1: some but, Well and they've been forced to know. deny they're going to sell it off etc, exactly, etc. cetera. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Um but whether that's enough you know, Brexit is a really big issue for people, um and, you know, whether that's enough um you know, Labour haven't made their position very clear on Brexit, which actually My view on that is actually that's probably quite a smart decision, really, because it doesn't seem to have affected them. Um, Perhaps maybe they've lost a few very hardcore Remainers who will have gone to the Lib Dems. But generally speaking, I think that's actually probably quite a smart smart, um, way of doing things, even though they've been quite criticised for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so yes, it is quite interesting. Uh, Yeah, Brexit is still you know, probably the biggest issue
1: or, you know, the second biggest issue, I think. Yeah, I mean, Tom Ryan, what do you guys think? Do people trust our politicians?
0: I, I think we're in, we're in a really bad place in terms of national politicians. Yeah. I think when you do these polls on what the people trust, they generally say that they trust local government and their councillors a bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but in terms of national politicians, we've, we've got a real problem now and I think it's those two issues that Robin just mentioned. So, the first one, Brexit conservatives are promising to their their catchphrase is get brexit done and i think that most people in britain do just want brexit to be done mm-hmm. that sadly is not an option right We're, we if if they get brexit done in january they get brexit phase one done yeah. and we move on to another they they're saying oh we, we will not extend our uh, negotiations for free trade deal with europe they will right it's almost certain that that's not true They've got mm-hmm. no choice, basically. so yeah. so that's not true and then on the nhs you have labour saying uh, the tories will uh, instantly privatize the nhs the nhs is for sale it's that's not going to happen no but but then the conservatives say we will it's not on the table at all and even liz Truss said uh nhs drug pricing Mm -hmm. is not on the table in a free trade deal with the usa Mm -hmm. it is yeah Mm -hmm. it it, it it is is. (laughs) we may not choose to do a deal about it but it is on the table so how how do you trust when and i think everyone can see that Mm -hmm. i I mean people aren't daft they can they can look around they see so they are just picking which of the poor options they think is least bad probably?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, I think that lack of trust is kind of reflected in the polar ratings for each of the leaders, so Carbon in particular has very negative ratings but so does Johnson as well and actually Joe Swinson now too. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> God. Yeah. so. And
2: because it is usually you measure you measure the leaders by popularity, don't you? But the, these days we're measuring them by unpopularity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely, yeah.
1: absolutely. Well just before we round off, I just want to talk about T V debates really, because there seems to have been a million and one of them this time round. You know, they were only They've only been going since, what, 2010, I believe the first one was? And we seem to have got more and more as, as we've kind of gone along. I mean, do we think that they're valuable? Do we think we learn anything from them? Or do we prefer things like, you know, um, an interview of Andrew Neil, for example, which uh, <laughs> at that time of recording Boris Johnson is still not committed to doing? I mean, are they, are they adding to our political knowledge as a nation? Or are they a waste of time?
3: I think they can be quite useful. They get decent viewing figures. I think there was about 4 million for the first one on ITV. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the bigger multi-party debates where Labour and Conservatives have not sent the leaders maybe got less attention, but I think the one, well, it'll be tonight between Johnson and Corbyn Mm -hmm. um, will be quite interesting. That's kind of Labour's last chance to... um, come out on attack and get the polls to narrow before next week so Absolutely. if they don't start narrowing this weekend after that I think it'll be looking bad for them So, By the time I, listeners hear this yeah. tomorrow
1: they'll know whether it's gone well yeah. or not for them yeah. so, <laughs> I mean
0: I, I think they're a good idea I think the idea of both uh, interviews of the leaders and uh, debates of the leaders are uh, a good idea I think we have to remember in the UK that they're very new. Mm-hmm. We, really, we don't have a long history of doing them. So if you compare the quality of what you get from, with, for example, French presidential debates or even US presidential debates, and even the primaries will have debates as well, I think they just know what they're doing more, mm-hmm. and we'll get there. We'll learn how to do them well. I think the Boris Johnson dodging an interview with Andrew Neil, to me, is... It, it really is bad all round Yeah, it's not. doesn't say a great thing about an interviewer that people don't want to talk to them, no. it doesn't say anything good about Boris Johnson that he won't do them I think Jeremy Corbyn, everyone agrees, had a pretty terrible time when he did it, so we're not getting much information from that and, and I think not doing it is definitely the worst performance in the debate with, uh, or the discussion with Andrew Neil, but was it much of a discussion with any of them? No. I, I, it just seemed like he was shouting at them, mostly. Mm. You know, and
1: people are saying that the BBC should get Andrew Neil to and share Boris Johnson now, and just ask the questions he would ask for half an hour, but mm. I I don't really see that that's adding to anything. You know, mm. you, might, you might think he deserves that for not doing the interview, but what does that really add to it? Does, it?
2: it does feel like there should be some kind of penalty, though, yes. because, it, you know you're as a politician you're accountable you should be accountable and by opting out and and now you know it's a week to the election we're not gonna he's not gonna do it he's not gonna do Mm. it this close to the election no way i in my view um so yeah it does feel like there should be some kind of penalty because it, it sets a precedent then for you know as the next election comes around people will be like oh these things are actually optional now we don't have to turn up to the debates we don't have to turn up to the interviews
1: and we've seen that with them sending substitutes as well for, exactly. the you know, for yeah. sure there's a lot of debates I understand that leaders are busy and can't get to all of them yeah. but, um, but you know you've seen that where you, it's you know, build as a leaders debate, and it turns up, and you've got um, kind of Rishi Sunak in place of Boris Johnson exactly. or yeah, Michael, <laughs> making Michael Gove. Michael yeah, exactly. Gove, yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, I think if the debates are going to be a, a thing in each election going forward, it's kind of have to be regulated with the parties having to agree to do a certain amount. And a yeah,
0: I'm sure that the, the, there are people at the BBC who have worked on that Andrew Neil interview series who are absolutely gutted. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, they must have felt that the Conservatives had committed to do it. They must yeah, have felt yeah. that. Because you wouldn't go ahead if not, before would you? Before they wouldn't. started doing the series. Yeah. And they've obviously... Not being able to make it work well—that's um, a—that's a decision by Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party. The idea you don't have time to do that is, is ridiculous. Yeah. So uh, I think they will be quite embarrassed about it, and I'm—I'm I'm sure that next time they will not make that mistake again. Yeah, <laughs>
2: absolutely, absolutely. And I think also just uh, what's interesting on um, the on the debates that haven't had the party leaders in—we've um, actually seen some really good performances. I think from what. What will be backbench and frontbench MPs? Yes, um, so names that that kind of ordinary people wouldn't have paid too much attention to. You know, names that even I haven't paid too much attention to, and that's you know part of my job. Um, and yeah, and seen some really, you know, Rebecca Long Bailey mm-hmm. stands out as a as a great example. And I think when you've got a leader in the party that's really weak, um, it's a really um, like kind of a smart idea, really, to to really showcase your other. Um, your other candidates as well um, and i think they've they've all actually done a really good job of that i think
1: yeah absolutely well that's all we've got time for this week thank you so much for joining me robin ryan and tom i'll be back in a second welcome back to pod zone country the yorkshire post political podcast i'm jerry scott the yorkshire post westminster correspondent and i'm joined by senior negotiations expert neil Clavier from hipway international based in rotherham Neil, you're an expert at negotiations, and I want to speak to you today about the skills politicians need to in an election in 2019. But first of all, tell us a bit about you and your background.
4: My background is in business and education. I started off a life in education, but I've gone through to business, and what we do is we consult with some of the largest companies in the world around sales, skills, strategies, and negotiation skills.
1: So how does that translate to what politicians might
4: need to do? I think I think communication is the common theme, and whether you are selling services or negotiating deals or indeed managing people, what you need are the behavioural skills to be able to do that, to persuade, to build trust, to communicate.
1: Absolutely. You know, communication is obviously a business I'm in, and it's something, as you say, which is really important in politics. In in your kind of trade, and what do you see, how have communications changed over well, the years?
4: The world is a faster place. Yes. Digitalisation. Uh, newspapers have got two problems: news and paper. Mm-hmm. You're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's become a digital world, mm-hmm. so information is out there much quicker than it's ever been before. Absolutely.
1: I mean, you know, speaking from my own experience, we all work on a 24-hour news cycle now, whereas yeah. in previous days you just had to worry about the one paper a day, didn't you?
4: And I think that means for politicians that they have less time to prepare. Mm-hmm. Often they are caught unaware. Mm-hmm. I think the the way that we treat politicians has definitely changed.
1: Mm, how so?
4: Um, politicians are no longer revered like they were 30 40 years ago uh, and uh, I think there's some big trust issues particularly in the current climate
1: so how do you feel that's kind of that that's changed how do you feel that we're you know looking at these politicians and you're saying that they don't feel like they're as they're comfortable answering questions
4: well I think the interview techniques have changed and it seems more of an interrogation at times these days, to try and get politicians to make a mistake rather than understanding the policies.
1: Yeah, I think if we look at you know, um, recent interviews with Jeremy Corbyn and Andrew Neil, um, or you also had Andrew Neil with Nicola Sturgeon as well last week, Andrew Neil's a very confident interviewer, but a lot of people will react to that by saying, What a takedown, what a, what a he destroyed her, he destroyed him, and do you think that's changed?
4: I think it has. I think it's it's much more aggressive. It means that people are reluctant to share information. Mm -hmm. And what we've done is we've proved that there's a link between uh, trust and a truthful exchange of information. Interesting. So if people feel as though they're not getting the truth, what happens is trust declines. And if you see what politicians often do is they often try to avoid answering the question. Whether that's to buy themselves time or whether they don't know the answers. I think that's what they do. And they they avoid the question. Mm-hmm. What happens is our our assessment of how trustworthy they are changes because we don't feel we're getting the truth.
1: Absolutely, yeah avid listeners of own Country, of which we know there are many, will know that we had uh, Nick Skeeter, a Brexit Party candidate on a couple of weeks ago and and he told us that what they've been told as candidates were was, if you don't know an answer to a question, just say, I don't know. And, you know, taking difficult to take politics away from the Brexit Party, but taking their politics out of it one of their big things is that they want they say they want to try and rebuild trust is putting your hands up and saying I don't actually know that, but I'll go, out, I'll go away and find out a good enough answer.
4: I think it is, yeah. yes.
1: That's I think
4: serious. it shows honesty, and I think people would respect that. Mm-hmm. I think there are several things that they can do, and it depends on why they can't answer the question. If they don't know the answer, I think it's to say, actually, I don't know the answer. But what I can do is I can go away and get that answer. If it's the fact that they don't understand the question... I think sometimes they can buy themselves some time by using some of the clarity behaviors that we highlighted to the key to success. hmm
2: that's, okay. that's
4: So, okay. for example, things like asking a question, testing their understanding of what's been asked, mm-hmm. saying, can I just think about that? Yeah. So that I give you the right answer and an answer that'd be useful or whatever it might be.
1: So we're kind of seeing this dehumanisation of politicians have you have you seen this as well
4: yeah I I think it's something that uh, is very prevalent in today's society Mm -hmm. that uh, politicians are dehumanised they are not allowed to make mistakes Mm. Uh, and what I think is that to actually overcome that there's some of the behavioural skills that can show empathy that actually show credibility, mm-hmm. and whether you're in business or politics, they're the kind of skills that in the twenty first century, all leaders of any type require.
1: Yeah, so let's let's talk about those skills because that's what you know. We've mainly got you here for today. in In twenty nineteen, what skills do you need to be an effective politician?
4: Uh, to be able to control a conversation. Mm-hmm. So we would talk about things like. Procedural proposing, which is directing a meeting or a conversation Mm -hmm. that allows you to take more control of the conversation. Okay, to be able to get clarity around the questions and the reasons why the questions are being asked. So, behavioural skills that actually slow the conversation down, give you time to think. So, unfortunately, I think what we see is we often see questions being answered by asking a question, mm-hmm. rather than saying can I just have some clarity around what you're asking and, and why you need to know that answer. Okay. So, that's, so that's, that's one thing, so clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, controlling the conversation, as I've said. Also using things like empathy. So we've identified some behaviours, a category of behaviour that we would see skilled negotiators using is is giving feelings. Hmm. That's externalising their internal feelings that you're very disappointed that this has happened or you're a bit unsure about the situation. Open behaviour which is saying you're sorry, apologising.
1: And I suppose that plays in a bit to what we were speaking Hmm. about, about humanising politicians, doesn't it? But I guess one of my questions for you is um, if we're talking about these skills, does that mean that we've moved to a place where potentially personalities are more important than policies? You know how important are the personalities that these politicians are portraying with these behaviours?
4: I think uh, personality is something that's very difficult to work on. Yeah, you can't really change your personality. <laughs> you are. You but are. You can change your behavioural mm-hmm. skill. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the key issue. So it's using the. Behaviors to actually control the climate, to send messages of credibility, empathy.
1: It keeps it keeps people real, doesn't it? And you know, it's um, we're talking about negotiations as well, and with the dreaded B word, Brexit, our politicians have been thrown into being negotiators, where on a, on maybe a. Kind of a higher stakes game than they often were before. Politicians always have to be negotiating, but maybe not with the with the stakes so high. Is it is it fair to expect our politicians to be skilled negotiators?
4: I think it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that we want our politicians to be able to do. Mm-hmm. If you think about the the treaties within Brexit, the 177 different treaties. Mm-hmm. Now a lot of that is done by people behind the scenes but often fronted up by ministers. So they have to be persuasive, they have to be able to negotiate, they have to be able to understand the consequences of what they say. Now, to do that often, that requires a good deal of preparation and planning. And I think, if you think about the digital world today, the immediacy of it and the speed of it means it's very, very difficult to prepare and plan for any eventuality. Uh-huh. So, often, all you've got left is your behavioural skills to go to housing stuff like that.
1: That's really interesting, because we're then looking at how politicians prepare and what they do behind the scenes in these negotiations, and also their behaviours in public. It's a, it's a, tricky, it's a tricky kind of balance to get, and you're right, we need to expect high standards and skills of negotiations from our politicians, but it's hard, right? It's a difficult thing to master.
4: Very difficult.
1: (laughs) So if you could give, you know, if you had Jeremy Corbyn, Boris Johnson, Joe Swinson in your office and they were saying, look Neil, I'm really stuck, what's the best way I can, what's the best thing I can do to get my message over to my voters before December 12th, what would you say to them? To be
4: very clear about your objective Mm is one thing. To have several reasons for wanting to do things, but not lots of reasons. So to be clear and well-versed around a couple of the reasons why you want to do it and to be able to communicate it effectively. So to use some of the behavioural skills that you have to get your point across to ensure that you're persuasive and to ensure that your conversation has impact and credibility and sends messages of trust. So if you don't know the answer, say We don't really know the answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we've got people who are working on it to be prepared to answer the question, even if that's confidential and I can't tell you. Mm -hmm. I think often what happens is, people try to skirt around the issues or dance around the issues, and what happens is that people feel as though they're not getting the whole truth.
1: Absolutely, and that plays into that thing about trust that we were saying earlier as well, doesn't it?
4: Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and
1: you kind of, if you come over as a, as a person who is, who is honest, who is going to tell the truth, even if you don't know the answer, people are hopefully, they would say, more likely to vote for you. Yeah,
4: I, th- I think the danger is often politicians have lots of reasons that they put onto the balance to persuade people. You know, the weight of the argument you hear people talking about, tipping the balance. The danger is that whilst the first couple of reasons are probably good reasons for doing something, when you get lower down and you look at the third, fourth, fifth, sixth reason, they tend to be quite weak reasons. And smart interviewers will ask, have you any other reasons for wanting to do that mm-hmm. until they get out the weak reason and what they do is attack it. Ah,
1: I see. We, we
4: would see persuasion as a balance. The more you put on the balance, the more persuasive. Actually, that's not true.
1: So you're better with those kind of fewer reasons that yes. strong ones. Stronger. And to say,
4: we think that those reasons alone are good enough for wanting to do this.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I suppose my last question, and I... Uh, You might not want to, but we ask everyone that comes on Pod's own country. (laughs) How do you think the country is going to look when we wake up on December 13th?
4: Very good question. And if I were a politician, I would try to delay answering that until I've got the full answer. (laughs)
2: So,
4: my view is that we're in a period of political turmoil. And I actually don't know what's going to happen. And I don't think the electorate do, or the politicians.
1: I definitely don't, I'll tell you that much. Well, thank you so much for coming on Pod's Own Country, Neil. That was Neil Clelia, a senior negotiations expert for, for Quay International, which are a company based in Rotherham. And we'll be back with you in just a few minutes. Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post's Westminster correspondent, You can get this podcast wherever you usually get your podcasts. Please make sure you leave us a review, share, subscribe, and tell your friends. And we'll be back next week.
2: New Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. Best Coca-Cola ever. Try it now and decide.
0: I need to try it first.